0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and good afternoon from the West Coast. Good evening to the East Coast. My name is Alicia John Baptiste. I'm the president and CEO of Spur. We are a Bay Area urban planning and policy organization with offices in San Francisco, Oakland, and San Jose. And this is the first time I have moderated a Commonwealth Club program, and I could not be more excited to be participating in today's program. It's so aligned with the work that we do in my organization. And a special welcome to all Commonwealth Club members. So we're here today to discuss the new book, Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation, with its authors, Harvard University economists Edward Glazer and David Cutler. Edward's specialty is urban policy. David focuses on healthcare, which, of course, is a perfect match for today's world. And their book really comes at a critical time for urban America and for cities across the country. After 18 months of the pandemic, many are wondering about the future of cities, especially ones like San Francisco, where today our, our offices remain largely empty, our downtown somewhat deserted. And many of the issues that existed before the pandemic, whether extremely high real estate prices, battles over development, health inequity, segregation, are things that we continue to grapple with. In my organization, SPUR, we focus on many of these urban issues, and our approach, which brings people together across sectors, aligns with a lot of the content and recommendations in this very important book. So, again, I'm just thrilled to be today's moderator. And as an important housekeeping tip before we get started with Edward and David, if you have a question for either of the authors or for me, please go ahead and put it in the Zoom chat. Questions that are posted there will be forwarded to me throughout the program. So we are going to jump in. And hello, Ed and David. It's really so great to be with you both today. Oh,
1: it's great to be with you too. Thank you so much for having us on.
2: It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you.
0: So needless to say, this is an incredibly timely book and really thinking about the future of cities post-pandemic. But before we start to talk about the future, I was thinking we could do a little bit of a step back. You do talk in the book about the fact that while COVID-19 is new for us, pandemics are something that humans have experienced in the past and cities have grappled with in the past. And I'd love for you to talk a bit about what we can learn from that history about the resilience or lack of resilience of cities.
1: So pandemics are an old demon of density, right? I mean, cities are the nodes on our global lattice of of trade and travel. They're the ports of entry for goods, for ideas and for viruses. And it has been ever so, right? I mean, the plague of Athens, which entered in through the port of Piraeus and then spread like wildfire across the dense confines of that city, leveled you know, what may have been the most you know, glorious moment in terms of collaborative creativity in the classical world. Uh, the plague of Justinian, which came a thousand years later, derailed that Eastern Roman emperor's attempt to rebring Roman peace to the Mediterranean world and sort of knocked, in some sense, all of Europe into a into a darker time period. For much of the last 650 years, however, cities have proven far more robust, Um the black death was a human catastrophe but it left europe actually richer because the amount of land per per capita goes up and in some sense fueled the urban renaissance of the of the 15th century and then the 19th century cities survived the plagues because they made investments that in some sense pandemic proofed their 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 cities and david has has written i think some of the most important work that's been done on on that investment david yeah,
2: yeah so it turns out that you know one of the things that really spurred the city to allowed it to be great was the ability to cure pandemic disease. So, you know, we had not so much COVID-19, but in the last couple of centuries, we had typhoid fever and other waterborne diseases and, um, you know, John Snow in cholera in London. And so if you look, you know, roughly a century ago, the most important things that government spent money on were big urban public health projects, water, chlorination, filtration, and streets and sewers and sanitation, all of that. And that investment paid off just multiple fold. Um, disease rates went plummeting, death rates went plummeting. So much so that, you know, from the Spanish flu till now, we had no super big world outbreaks. So there was really a century where we did well. What happened is I think a couple of things. One is world travel got so fast that diseases can spread from Wuhan, China to New York in a matter of minutes. Um, And that was way faster than we were prepared for. And also that the world had... Let its guard down, that we did the things that we needed to prevent the spread of cholera within the city, but we hadn't done the things we needed to do to prevent the spread of covid across the world or SARS or MERS or any of the other potential pandemics that came before so we're at another inflection point, which is if we if we want to have our cities be health and healthy and 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 uh, sustainable for us. We're going to need to address these just as we had to address the earlier issues of, of air and waterborne diseases that, that um, plagued uh, cities just until very recent times.
1: I mean, in, in the book, in the 19th century, you know we really argue that it's the hinge of history where governments stopped being pretty much exclusively agents of death which is pretty much all they did prior to 1800 was to kill people into actually, you know, agents of life saving. That was fundamentally about cities and sewers and aqueducts. And that was really the moment which actually governments turned into, into benevolent agents.
0: You know, it's interesting that you raise that. I was just thinking about infrastructure and the fact that in prior pandemics, the positive response has been the introduction of infrastructure that actually held those pandemics at bay and increased health and safety across the collective. One of the things that you speak to in this book is how the orientation of our public health infrastructure today actually set us up to be more vulnerable to this pandemic. And I wonder, David or Ed, if you could expand on that a bit, what you saw as the ways in which we were prepared and the ways in which we were not prepared for what we're grappling with now.
2: Yeah. So the the U.S. and the world had some institutions directed at this. So, for example, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is seen as the worldwide model for how do you run a public health agency. It's actually not very well funded at all, and it's really the only game in town. So, if something goes bad, for example, their first tests for COVID uh, were off, and so they gave a lot of false positives. Then you just can't do your testing right away. So it'd be as if you know you said, look, there's only you know, one road into the city and oops, if, you know, something happens on that one road, sorry, no one can get in or out of the city. Well, that's kind of a lousy way to run a city, if you think about any kind of urban design or anything. So, 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 but that, that's kind of how we had it. We had a world health organization that, you know, was sort of charged with the kind of health of the world that really sort of blows with the wind of where the money is. You know, so China was supplying a fair part of the WHO budget. So as a result of that, when China says everything is okay, the WHO says everything is okay. And before that, um, when there's an Ebola outbreak in West Africa, you know, for fear of hurting the economies of of West Africa, they don't declare an outbreak or an epidemic of, of Ebola. That's not a very good thing. If you're charged with doing something technical, like making sure the world is safe, then you have to do that one thing. And the example we contrast that with is NATO. Which is, you know, had one mission, which was to prevent uh, the West from attack by the Soviet Union, and it didn't mince around, and it didn't, you know, it, it, it didn't do things for political expediency that it, that were not appropriate uh, technically. <clears throat> and so, what 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 we what we say is that part of what we're going to need is to take these real scientific questions, like how do you prevent world pandemic? How do you make sure that you have a functioning disease prevention and 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 spread and, and capable of stopping spread and really turn them into true scientific questions and say, we're going to devote the resources that we need to make those scientific questions, those, those scientific needs work. And then somewhere else in the back office, we're going to deal with all the politics of how do you deal with these upset countries? How do you deal with, you know, with the rest of it? But those two cannot be together because it just doesn't work well.
0: The, the, one of the other things that I saw in your writing was a reflection on our healthcare system in this country being set up as a um, treat the disease, particularly treat the disease of the individual, rather than being set up as either preventive care or considering sort of community health writ large. Can you talk a bit more about that?
2: Yeah, maybe <laughs> I'll jump in here first and then Ed can, can jump back. What we have set up in the US is an extremely costly uh private healthcare system. That is what it basically does, is when you get sick, it helps to pay the bills. And it it does that very well. That is, it spends close to four trillion dollars a year paying the bills of Americans who get sick, and that's more per person than any country in the world. It's roughly 50% more than your typical rich country spends that is very different from a healthcare system that is set up to ensure the public's health. And so we're going to have to move from one that's focused on the private health of individuals, really the private payment of medical bills into one that thinks about their health. And that's going to be a couple of different dimensions to that. One is one one dimension is investing in public health much more. So what's happened is we've squeezed out the private healthcare component and we've the private health care component has squeezed out the public health care component. Every dollar we spend on treating someone who's very ill with a new expensive disease, that is money that can't be used for things like public health and pandemic pr- preparation. But the other thing is, even for those of us, e- e- you know, even outside of that situation, we always knew that healthcare care was kind of sick in that when, when we were sick, it didn't work right. We had difficulty accessing it. The cost was too high. The system was too difficult to use, and so on. And what we've learned is that, unfortunately, that's still true even in a pandemic. That even in a pandemic, the four trillion dollars doesn't buy you a smooth functioning uh, healthcare system. It, you know, it's still impossible to use, and people are afraid of going to it even. And you know, it, it, you know, you couldn't use, you, you couldn't zoom your doctor until the beginning of the pandemic, and even now, it's not quite as easy as you want. So we're going to have to address the um, private side of it too just the how do we make sure that people get access to their non-pandemic healthcare needs because what we've learned is that even the pandemic even during the pandemic we can't
1: do it any better
0: yeah thank you david
1: so i uh, just 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 to add just a little bit on that so um One of the stories that we tell in the book is we try to explain why we have a a health insurance system, not a public health system, why we have a system that does so poorly at at controlling the amount of money that gets spent. And so such a poor job of making sure that the money is targeted towards areas where it's going to do the most good. And we really trace this to the history of, of the essentially Southern Democrats or near Southern Democrats who put this together, who had two things. They were very happy with the idea of Washington paying the bills, with Washington spending money, particularly for poor people. Um, but they didn't want Washington control, right? I mean, there were Southern Democrats. They were, they were quite afraid of this. This is Wilbur Mills of Arkansas, Lyndon Johnson of, of uh, Texas, and Harry Truman of Missouri. And so they set up a system to spend but not to control. And so that's exactly what we got is we got a system that spends practically without limit, but does not actually you know, have the sort of muscular control over a public health system, which was really the different vision as opposed to Woodrow Wilson's sort of vision of sort of the first uh, ideas of, of a new freedom, the, the Teddy Roosevelt idea of actually having a public health system that would be really run from Washington. And while certainly there are downsides to that, we think given the, the risk of pandemic, we're going to need to have more of that. We need to have more targeting of our our spending and less of a sense that you can just leave it to uh, writing the checks.
0: Thank you. So, you know, one of the dynamics of the pandemic, of course, has been the impact to cities, and for many of us living in cities or um, around cities, what we've seen is significant change in the way that cities are used and the amount of people who are there. I think, you know, I, I referenced in the opening that in San Francisco, also Oakland, also San Jose, any of the major cities of the Bay Area where we work, um, they're just largely empty still. We just have not seen a return to office, even though we're 18 months into this pandemic. So we're really grappling with the, um, you know, the the malfunction of the system that you've been describing Before we start to get into solutions, I'd love to hear from you a bit about why it was important to write this book. What is it about the health of cities and securing the health of cities for the future of humanity that was so important to each of you?
1: You know, certainly I I believe very strongly that cities have been the the home for humanity's most important collaborations. For the partnership between, you know, Plato and Socrates, 2,400 years ago, for the creativity that gave us the Italian Renaissance, they are at their best. They're entryways for poorer people to find opportunity. Uh, They're places where the young can can learn and can see their wages grow. At their best, they are really humanity's greatest invention. Um, And when they don't work, they you know they destroy opportunity for for billions of people throughout the planet. In a sense, the shutdown that happened in March 2020, the social distancing was the rapid fire de-urbanization of our world. For cities at their heart are the absence of physical space between people. Cities are density, proximity, closeness. And this shock felt so terrible for for cities, in part because it was, you know, joined by the the Zoom change, which made it feel as if maybe we won't ever go back to to working together but also perhaps even more importantly, because cities felt vulnerable pre-COVID. If you think about almost 20 years ago today, when the terrorists hit the Twin Towers, there was a remarkable consensus about what pragmatic government was so supposed to look like in cities like New York and Chicago and Los Angeles. And over the past 20 years, that pragmatic consensus has just disappeared, in part because the benefits of cities seem to be accruing, not to everyone, not providing an up up escalator for everyone but it seems to be going for a remarkably restricted few and this is partially about the housing affordability crisis it's partially about low levels of upward mobility in cities and it's partially about a police force which seems to treat young men of color or poorer young men more generally with you know disrespect in many places and so we really think that fixing the cities means actually addressing those root problems not just fighting for better health
2: I think that's totally right. I, I will say also that something that's ingrained in that is the huge disparity in health, even in different parts of the city. You know, So if you move, um, one example we give is in New York, which um, is on the opposite coast, but undoubtedly many of of your folks will know it intimately, you can go 12 minutes by subway and lose 12 years by life expectancy. And just to give you a sense of what that means, smoking rates, smoking cuts about 10 years off your life expectancy. So it's the equivalent of taking a subway ride and going from a place where everyone smokes and to a place where nobody smokes. And even then that's not the whole difference. So it's just this huge disparity. And you say, you know, and use the analogy, which is, which is perfect of the up escalator. And you say, well, how can you have an up escalator if, you know, in one part of the city you have people who are rich and living wonderful and fulfilling lives. And in the other part of the city, it's a struggle to live as long or as well as people in low and middle income countries around the world. And that's just not working for everybody. And so you have to find a way to make this work for everybody or people are going to get really really frustrated and it's and you know it's it's it, and that that is not a recipe for things going well.
0: Yeah, you know, we have obviously very similar dynamics in the bay area as well. We you know, I think many people have talked about the dynamic where a zip code zip code from a zip, person's zip code you can tell what their life expectancy will be. And one of the things that I found incredibly fascinating and intriguing about your book was one of the tenets that you hold around this concept of insiders versus outsiders and the idea that we organize ourselves over time to have a small group of insiders who control resources at the expense of the outsiders. I'd love to hear you talk a bit more about, just elaborate on that dynamic and also how it informed your thinking when you started to consider what our future needs to hold.
1: So this idea is associated with Manker Olson in The Rise and Decline of Nations from 1983. And I read this book, probably David to two in graduate school in the late 1980s, early 1990s. And it didn't feel to me like it was describing America. It was all about how in stable societies, insiders grab all the levers of power and there's no room for new entrepreneurship or new housing construction or anything like that. And I thought, oh, you know, this is America. There's, you know, lots of, you know, it's the age of Reagan. There aren't all these insiders. And didn't Thatcher change everything in, in the UK and everything? And 30 years later, I think that Olson was completely right. <laughs> I first started, you know, working about 20 years ago on the barriers to building housing. And I thought of that as being a relatively isolated example where, you know, well-organized cliques collect- of insiders had figured out how to use the rules of local housing, uh, local land use regulation to basically stop any new construction, which, you know, preserved their views, preserved their property values, made sure that their commutes were shorter. But, you know, by raising the gate against any new construction, you raise the gate against any outsider who might want to come into uh into your area. I mean, Proposition 13, of course, in California was, you know, just did this on steroids, right? Because it also made sure that the insiders paid totally different property taxes than the outsiders did, which is a particularly egregious example of this. But, you know, you see this in lots of other areas as well. We see this in terms of our public schooling system, where if you think about you know one set of insiders is being suburban parents who have managed to create relatively good schooling system for their kids but then excluded the kids who go to inner city schools and don't get advantages you can also think of this as being you know a teachers union, which can possibly argue that their teachers have a legal right not just not to go into class and face the disease—that's understandable—but also to have a legal right not to zoom in. That's at, which was a stance, of course, that the California teachers union took last summer. That's a that's a very hard one to see how that's you know not hurting outsiders at, at the expense of insiders, and of course also things like occupational licensing that you know make it difficult for people to change. Um, To change states. So uh, this collection of different rules, barriers on entrepreneurship, I mean, one particular outrage, I think, is the extent to which America regulates the entrepreneurship of the poor so much more than it regulates the entrepreneurship of the rich. I mean, if you want to start your internet phenomenon in your Harvard College dorm, you can have basically a billion users before any regulator knows that you exist. If you want to start your grocery store, you know, half a mile away that sells milk products, you need 15 permits to get this thing through, right? And this does nothing but sort of protect the existing incumbents and so this has led to a society in which you know mobility is way down in which new construction in the most productive parts of america is way down in which we have persistent pockets of joblessness that have you know stayed that way for 30 or 40 years because change is so difficult and it's led to a society that's much less dynamic quite honestly. And in some sense, if you ask yourself why young people feel embittered with capitalism, in some sense, it's because we've created a sort of crony capitalism that doesn't work for them, that protects, you know, older people who own homes and doesn't make space for them.
2: I was just going to add, you know, um, for the the past century, the, the way that people got ahead was to move to urban areas. And typically what would happen is people would move to the richest areas because that's where the demand for workers was the highest and that's where um, jobs were the most plentiful and so on. And so we saw people moving to Los Angeles and the Bay Area and New York and so on. And then in the past few decades, it's gotten so outrageously expensive in all those areas that we no longer see people moving there. Or if they do move there, they're moving not to the central areas; they're moving to the outlying areas. So it's it, where they have you know extremely long commutes and um, not those sort of interactions that 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 we were talking about. Um, and co- so conversely, what's happening is people are moving to other cities, which are great for them. They're moving to Houston and Las Vegas and Phoenix and across the. The plains where building is much easier and houses are much cheaper. And that's all good. There's nothing wrong with that. But on the other hand, there's sort of areas like, you know, the Bay Area, which are just crying out for workers in many ways. And yet the people can't afford to be there. And that's true of so many of our biggest cities where people would like to be there and and many of the people there would like to have them there. But we've structured it so that they just can't afford to be there.
0: So this is, you're obviously describing our our day-to-day reality, and we um, in the Bay Area are consistently locked into battles over housing development. And at the same time, we talk constantly about the unsheltered population. We have over 35,000 people literally unable to afford to live under a roof in the Bay Area, and yet we have underbuilt housing by 700,000 units in the last 20 years. And then we wonder why people can't afford to be here. It's not a, it's not a, a dynamic that has changed in any meaningful way in, you know, the last number of years. And I, I'm curious, you talk in your book about the importance of providing more opportunity to build, to build in dense environments how do we how do we actually move that kind of a concept forward, given this dynamic of the insider control? What what is the pathway for a region like ours that's really struggling with this dynamic, right? right
1: so now? so uh, so let me just give a twenty a, a year perspective on this problem. So I, I think, in fact, yes, it is true. We have not yet moved the legislative needle, despite what's going on in Sacramento right now, which is sort of vaguely hopeful. Um, we we have not certainly not uncracked the 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 you know knot of local housing and even if we do have uh, you know fast track for two unit uh, two unit developments right there's still going to be lots of ways for, for local communities to figure out how to gut that you know even if even if a rule like that does, does get enacted um, but that being said you know in 2001, 2002, when I first was thinking about it, there was nobody who thought that this was a reasonable issue to worry about. There were no yimbies. I, I don't think there was a spur. I, I don't think there was anything that in terms of actual groups who thought that this was a problem that was worth fighting over. And so for me, I I, I think it's, it's you know, I see lots of progress and that I see actually people who have come to realize that actually we need more housing. And it's not, you know, it's an issue that's not some sort of elite issue. And it, it's not, you don't want more housing because you want to help the developers at all. You want more housing because it's just incredibly healthy for the region to allow more space for ordinary people to move in. And it's good for the environment, right? Because there's no greener place intrinsically to build than in the San Francisco Bay Area with its temperate climates and, you know, and BART. Um, so I, I just look at what's happening. Yes, the fight is, you know, the fight is long. The fight is hard. The fight is slow. But the fact that there are you know people who are engaged in making the fight for at least for me feels incredibly hopeful. I will say I think that like this has got to happen in state legislatures. I think that that's ultimately where the the power comes from. Maybe the federal government can help a little bit. You know, I've tried to argue for doing more to tie federal highway aid or federal infrastructure aid to areas that, that permit more building. Um, But fundamentally local control over zoning is controlled by the state legislature and only the state and, Small localities never have a strong interest in allowing huge amounts of, of development locally because they're controlled by homeowners who just don't want that. And so it's ultimately going to be in the state house where the case for a fairer and more open California or Massachusetts is going to be made.
2: I was going to say, to be fair, there's no reason we should pick on you entirely. Our own city has exactly the same problems, which are. Young people who want to live in the area that make it a dynamic environment. You know, Boston loves to be a city of universities that can't afford to live in the environment, and the 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 ups and the 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 similar relation, the similar story to that as well, which I think you have as well, which is young upstarts that businesses that can't get the space because the rents are too high. So you might have an idea for some new type of business, and you say, well, you know, look, maybe if rents are cheap, I can give it a flyer. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it doesn't work, but you know, that's what dynamism is all about. But the problem is when the rents are so high, you can't do it unless you're like absolutely certain the thing is going to succeed and so on. So it really has a, a very big impact both on the people and on the businesses in an area.
0: So I'd love to follow up on that point because I'm, I'm interested in how you perceive the dynamic of remote work affecting some of, some of that um, underlying pattern. But first, I want to just acknowledge, thank you, Ed, for the note of optimism. It's helpful to be reminded that it's a long arc um, and secondly, you know one of the one of the other reflections I was considering is that even even with the concept of density and adding you know adding capacity to cities, what we have seen and cities are developing in all kinds of different ways there's areas that are more restricted um, and then there are areas that have been very much open for business, regardless. There was a study published recently by the Othering and Blogging Institute at Cal Berkeley, which found that over the past 30 years in the largest metros in the United States, racial residential segregation has increased um, over in 80% of cases. And so I wonder if you've thought about if there are interventions that are required. Oh, and by the way... The life outcomes that you were speaking to earlier, David, are very much also track against uh, racial residential segregation. If there is something that's necessary in addition to allowing for more building, allowing for more opportunity, allowing for more density to grapple with that or address that dynamic.
1: So we started our... um... Our work together on uh, on racial segregation 25 years ago. So, in fact, the first paper that David and I ever wrote was on the downsides of, of racial segregation for African-American, uh, African-American, relatively young African-Americans in, in the U.S. Um, the uh, the impacts of racial segregation are terrible. Um And one of the things that's particularly difficult is the segregation of kids, the experienced segregation of kids is much worse than the segregation of adults as as experienced day to day. And and the way to think about this is, you know, cell phone data shows us that when adults, um, you know, who live in a segregated area get up and go to work, they, you know, live, they go to work in a relatively integrated office. But a child who wakes up in a segregated housing project will go to a heavily segregated school, and in a sense, for that child they 're experiencing a, a world that 's like an isolated village where all of the mixing and integration that that can come from city life that really is is gone and Um, That, I think, is is a big reason why, in fact, cities seem to be so bad for upward mobility for children, even though adults who come to cities typically do experience significant wage gains over adults who live in other areas. And so when we think about trying to create uh, cities of opportunity for poor kids, we really are fighting against that. And of course, more segregated cities, you particularly have lower levels of upward mobility for African-Americans. Fighting against segregation is incredibly hard, but certainly when I think of you know a move to life by Zoom, or even worse, like the 15-minute city, right? These are all things which are saying, oh, let's just retreat into our enclaves. Let's just separate ourselves from each other. And that seems like it's moving in exactly the other direction. And that seems to be why it's so important that we make our public spaces safe, that we make our public transportation safe, and that we also have meaningful ways of actually improving the education experience for the least advantaged Americans.
2: One of the things that came out very clearly when we were doing the work that Ed described is that the cities where uh, segregation was the highest are cities that were stagnant, where they were not adding a lot of people, they were not adding a lot of houses, so everything was just fixed. So you had neighborhoods that had historically been white and they remained white and areas that had historically been ghetto and they remained ghetto. And that was just the way it was. And then the cities that were growing rapidly, you know, you're building new houses on the edge of the city. And so everyone can move in there and then that frees up houses in the interior. And so everyone can move in there. And particularly if you have an open-minded population that says, you know, look, I'm not going to choose my neighborhood because it's white or because it's Hispanic or because it's not black or whatever it is, then you can really get a lot more mixing of people rapidly when the city is growing and changing than when it's just fixed and stagnant. And so that was actually the key to a lot of cities becoming more open is that same kind of openness to building then means people don't fight over what's there as much. And no, you can't move in here because this is going to destroy my neighborhood and there's nowhere else I can go and so on. And you just don't see that as much in cities that are much more dynamic.
0: So going back to this concept of remote work and and Ed, you, you talked about this as a little bit dystopic, where do you see that going? I, I feel like this is sort of a constant question in the, you know, among planning circles and a lot of attention being paid to wanting to make the city's center an attractive place for people to return, given that that people have more choice in where they work or, you know, people who have the option to work remotely have a t- more choice to. Um, in terms of where they work. Do you think this is a normative change? Will we work differently going forward? And if so, how do you see that impacting the future of cities?
1: So uh, I think that, you know, remote work is real, but I don't think it's a, you know, game-changing, you know, death of face-to-face work, death of office kind of thing, right? This is not the first time we've heard that, you know, remote work will kill off the office in the city. Alvin Toffler wrote in The Third Wave that these new technologies that were coming about in his day it was fax machines and personal computers were basically going to mean a massive increase in everyone working from home which was going to cause a massive hollowing out of urban offices and a continued decline of our cities. And for about, you know, 40 years Toffler was completely and totally wrong because what happened over the past 40 years was there was a rapid increase in the returns to innovation a rapid increase in the returns to being skilled uh, an increase in the complexity of the world and we are a social species that gets smart by being around other smart people and that means physically and the more complicated an idea is, the easier it is for that idea to get lost in translation. And we have these cues for communicating comprehension or confusion that are lost when we're just not in the same room with one another. I mean, you know, I can't tell you how how frustrating it is to try and teach any kind of large class by Zoom relative to actually having the feeling of, of just being there. You know, in two of the most uh, I think, think clear uh, work from home studies, first a classic by Nick Bloom of, of Stanford, who's just a, an outstanding economist, um, and one by our students, Natalia Emanuel and, and, and Emma Harrington, find very similar patterns, which is in the short run, when you send workers home, call center workers, right, they become more productive. They have fewer distractions. They do a perfectly good job of churning out this call work. But both studies show significantly lower promotion rates for those workers who are sent home. Now, what do you promote a call center worker to do? You promote them to handle harder calls. And so how would you learn how to handle those difficult calls if you were at home, right? You've got no one to listen to. You've got no one to imitate. How would your boss learn that you're any good at, do- at doing those doing those calls? Because the boss isn't isn't near you. And so this dynamic feature, which is so critical in cities that what the great English economist Alfred Marshall talked about 130 years ago when he wrote that in dense clusters, the mysteries of the trade become no mystery, but are as it were in the air. Those sort of dynamic elements have got to pull people back. And I think one key thing to remember is, you know, if you think about Silicon Valley before 2020, right, this was the industry that had the most access to, you know, all the forms of remote work. Is this what Yahoo did? Is this what Google did? Is this what Facebook did? They just sent everyone home? No, exactly the opposite, right? I mean, I I cite Yahoo because Marissa Meyer famously ordered everyone back. But, you know, Google bought the Googleplex. Google bought a million and a half square feet in downtown Manhattan. They all try to create these work playgrounds to make sure that people are around each other all the time because they believe that creativity works by connecting people. And one of the interesting things that's come out of Microsoft is that, in fact, you know, there's a nice study that came out last month that there's a real decrease in connections across different groups which the paper really thinks is going to lead to a decrease in creativity at Microsoft because these work teams are becoming more siloed. One final point is that, you know, the remote world is just a very hard world for onboarding new workers. And it's a very unequal world. So the onboarding point is, you know, if you look at productivity, computer programmers, you know, some studies have suggested it's also just fine. But if you look at new hires for computer programmers or burning glass technologies, counting of new postings, that was down 40% between February twenty uh, twenty and, and November twenty twenty, so a massive decline in the amount of onboarding, and you saw this across all the remotable occupations. So while it was possible for relationships to coast on pre-existing ties, right? People were very wary about onboarding new workers. Last point, right, if you really imagine a world in which Zoom becomes ubiquitous, you are imagining America that is going to be vastly more unequal than even the America of 2019, which was certainly unequal enough for my taste, right? If you think about May 2020, right, the height of the uh, the Zoom world, right, 68.9%, overwhelming majority of people with advanced degrees were Zooming to work. 5% of high school dropouts were Zooming to work. 15% of people with only high school degrees were, were remote uh working remotely right this is not something that involves l- large swaths of the population and so it, it really is something that we that we should fight against and while it's a great thing to have zoom as an occasional tool we should not be planning our cities so that they're going to have empty offices
2: just uh i'll just add to add to the litany because because it, it's just it, it's there's just so much you know there was a study of uh in an emergency setting, you need to convey information from one person to another, and it turns out that information was conveyed better when the two workers were in the same room as opposed to the next room over. And actually, it turned out that the information was conveyed better when their desks were nearby than when they were in the same room but their desks were further away. And why is that? Because of the su- undoubtedly because of the subtle interactions that come from being together as opposed to being um, uh, being even a little bit further apart. The, the other relevant study is there was a study uh, uh, this one I, I think I find it just wonderful of um, uh, it, it turns out even uh, chess matches have gone uh, to zoom and based on computer judgments the chess players are not playing as well over zoom as they did when they were in person playing so there's just something about being in person that makes people be more productive and I think um, w- w- we're as a society i think people are realizing that much more than so than they thought like all the talk about how education is going to be entirely online certainly has been halted and so on and so my my sense is that we're going to have to we we will want to and and it'll be good for us to come back together at least uh somewhat
0: i i think that one of the things that really struck me over the course of the pandemic not that it's over but in the earlier stages of the pandemic was when people had the opportunity to start to be together again, even if it was outside in a park wearing masks, people flocked to that opportunity, and so it did. It did indicate to me that there's something very human about being together um, and having that kind of a connection. And I, I certainly see, as somebody who runs an organization myself, I certainly see that pull towards understanding that we work better when we are together. It doesn't necessarily mean that we will choose the same places or the same cities as we did pre-pandemic though. And, and we've certainly seen plenty of examples in the course of history of cities that have gone through a major shock that haven't recovered and that have lost population and have changed, you know, changed dramatically, whether it was through industrialization or through previous pandemic or other experience. And I I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what you think those success factors are for cities going forward. What should cities be really holding front and center as we start to get into this maybe post-pandemic phase, in order to secure that success?
1: Uh, so I think this is entirely right. So let's let's take a mythical ten-person tech startup that is I don't know in Menlo Park, something like that. And they're they're you know they're fed up with the high prices in the San Francisco area, but do we really think this group of people are actually going to just say, oh, let's just go off to 10 different isolated cabins? No, this, this doesn't sound at all like a recipe for a young, hungry group, right? What they're going to do is get together and say, well, where on the map are we going to go, given that we can now meet with our venture capitalists via, via Zoom, given that we can meet with other investors via Zoom? You know, maybe we all like skiing. Maybe Vail is for us. Maybe we all like surfing. Maybe Honolulu is for us. Maybe we all want to live in Texas and pay lower taxes. Maybe Austin's for us. So in a sense, it's not as if face-to-face contact is dead. It's not as if urban life is dead. But every city is more vulnerable than ever. And I will tell you what it feels a bit to me like is like the 1970s, when we had a bit of a revolution in terms of urban mobility. And this came both from mobility of – You know, richer urbanites who had access through highways to suburbs and of businesses who increasingly could locate away from the older transportation networks because of highways, because of container ships. And so the the tax base became increasingly mobile in the 70s. Now, what this collided with in cities like New York, and you felt this left in California, because in fact we were all going to California those in those decades. So you didn't you didn't have the same feeling. But you know, I was a kid growing up in New York City, and what this collided with was this very strong progressive dream of creating a city that was fairer for all, and that you should do so by taxing your businesses more and by taxing the rich more. And what happened with those very laudable objectives is that the the rich and the businesses just left. And in 1975, New York teetered on the edge of bankruptcy uh, because they'd essentially Proved unable to pay their bills. This is what, in some sense, I worry about today. That there is a completely understandable progressive hunger to make our cities greater places of opportunity, and we get that, and we want that too. But we can't expect to do that just by taxing the rich and taxing the businesses and giving money away. We need uh, better government, a- as well as um, you know, uh, as well as as better cities, uh, t- in order to get better cities. And so what we're pushing for is that there are some cases in which we think the federal government can do more, of course, because the federal government can raise taxes without this flood of uh, threat of people emigrating. I think the key with federal spending is to make sure it goes on things that are smart. And so in many cases, like fixing urban schools, uh, we think we actually don't know all the answers. We've had two large-scale federal interventions in education over the past 20 years, No Child Left Behind and Moving to Opportunity. Both of them were quite interesting, both of them were very smart, neither of them made a huge difference in terms of the quality of our underperforming schools. And so we really we think should be more experimental. Uh, One possibility which we threw out was the idea of wraparound vocational training programs that teach kids how to become programmers or plumbers after school weekends on the summer, leaving existing uh, schools uh, untouched. You can evaluate them. You can pay for performance because you can actually judge whether or not someone's a decent programmer at the point of graduation. And if it works, you scale it up. If it doesn't work, you scale it down. And the federal government should be paying for things like that, particularly for disadvantaged kids. At the local level, we think you can do plenty on rethinking your land use controls that make it difficult to provide housing for uh, middle-income people. We can rethink our business regulations that make it particularly hard for the poor to start new businesses. That's not something that's going to scare anyone else away. The one local expense that um, I think is going to be harder is we really do need to have a criminal justice system that um, does a better job of taking care of, of the entire, the entire uh, city. And in a sense, if you think about the move from the 1980s to today, in some sense, it has been quite successful. We have far lower murder rates in many of our large cities. They're far safer. But it was a very one-sided success in the sense that we locked up millions of young men, right? Uh, and we you know, led millions of other young men to be you know, essentially stopped or frisked or harassed on the streets and thousands of young men to be shot by police in the process of, of law enforcement. This should not stand. We need to have a law enforcement system that treats everyone with respect and stops crime. We need to have a dual requirement for for our cops. Now, what we think is that, you know, you don't get an organization to change without having metrics. You need to have metrics on crime, which currently drive policing, but you also need metrics on how much the people are feeling respected. You need to have surveys of the customers. And with that, you then can basically fire the police chiefs who fail to deliver But if we're actually going to get a police system that's going to be both humane and effective at preventing crime, to treat everyone with decency, we're probably going to need to spend more on it, not less. And so our our lesson is on this is reform the police. Absolutely, right? Absolutely. Do not accept the status quo, but don't expect to spend less and get more. That's not something that happens. We need to get more, and that means we're probably going to need to spend more.
2: So at the risk of indicting ourselves, I will make one Observation, which is um, one of the really big agendas on city for city managers at the moment, is the ability to manage well, to run things well, because we need to reform the public health infrastructure in the city. And it's not a great mystery how you do it. Like you need people to do contact testing and tracing and help with isolation and so on. And we need people to help organize a a police department with better reporting systems and better accountability. And you need to think about school options and so on. So uh, we don't need the kind of, I mean, it's always helpful, but you—but we're not in need of the 30,000 foot, where do we want to go? What we're desperately in need of is the 10,000 foot, how do we get ourselves there? And I think um, Ed and I are both associated with the public policy school at Harvard. I'm also associated with the school of public health. We both teach Harvard undergraduates. My sense is that as a field and probably as individuals, we haven't done enough to train people in how to make things happen, not just what things you want to happen and you know, what are the politics of, of it, but you know, how do you actually get those good ideas to
1: work? I, I have a mantra, which I'll just say, which is that in city government, capacity is far more important than policy, which just means the ability to get things done is actually much more important than knowing clever ideas about, that you actually want to do.
0: So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow up on that in a bit, but I am going to turn to some of our audience questions. So the first question, what is the best use of office skyscrapers if more people work from home?
2: Let me start off, which is um, if more people are working from home, there will be less demand for um, uh, uh, downtown office space. That will be particularly true among the kind of suburbanites who have a house at home and are in a office space and so on. Um, I think there are probably two things that can happen to that. One is that some of the office space becomes used by startups. And so we were talking about that, you know, you, you might have a startup that could use some of the space that some of the, the big firm no longer needs. Um, second, and it's less true for the super big skyscrapers, but it may be true a little bit lower down on the pecking order, is that some of the commercial space could be turned into residential space. So in our home city of Boston, a lot of the uh, housing is actually converted from old wharves. And again, for younger people and people who want to live in the city, that's what they want. They don't want a sort of house with a yard and you know so on. They want that. That won't be the sort of gleaming office tower, but it may be that some of the business will come together both old and new in the gleaming office tower. And then some of the other things where the uh, where the businesses are located will then convert into, uh, housing.
0: Um, Ed, I, I've that you heard the question. Are you back with this, head? may have lost Ed for a minute. I'm going to go to another audience question, David, if that's okay. Sure. Um, so this person is asking, have you taken a look at the website next door and its tendency to create digital gated communities via social media? Uh,
2: so th- I, I know a little bit about it and I know, um, uh, you know, and 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 of course there are other other uh, uh, things as well, and and some sort of real uh, gated communities. I, I would say the the sort of horror scenario for cities is that instead of cities where which are melting pots, we have enclaves of rich people, enclaves of middle class people, and then the poor get what's ever left, and that is one hellish scenario you know where you know you could imagine where you know the rich suburbs are you know gated and only rich people get to come in and those they invite get to come in and middle income people live in quasi gated communities and so on and poor live outside of that that would just be terrible on all sorts of dimension on every dimension you could think of it's not impossible however and we've seen cities you know where rich people flee them and middle income people sometimes flee them and so on and that's what can happen if you have a combination of bad shocks combined with bad management and 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 so on. So so that would just be terrible. Now, of course, to the extent that the virtual world substitutes for the real world, that is, you know, I want to hang out with some like-minded people and I can do it over the internet and I don't need to do it in person, that can be beneficial. Um so so it not everything that brings people of a common ilk Together is bad if it, but when it's associated with kind of stopping the escalator and putting up the barriers at the at the beginning and the end of the escalator, then it then it really is getting into difficult territory
0: you know this is something that I, I thought about raising earlier, but it was certainly a question I had as I was reading through um, your book and building on this concept of we could have. A scenario where we have communities where the wealthy are isolated in one place and other folks are in others. What do you think stops that dynamic from happening now? I mean, there's, you know, there's sort of every reason for wealthy people to wall themselves off. And maybe in some cases they already are, you know, we we were talking about the fact that it's so challenging to build housing, et cetera. But why doesn't that happen in a more mass scale? What What is it that is, Keeping people in this kind of social dynamic of um, experiencing more diversity.
2: So, in the 1970s, of course, there were a lot of cities that had near death experiences. You know, New York and, you know, Ford to New York dropped dead, and Boston, which was largely depopulated, and Detroit, which unfortunately depopulated enormously, and Cleveland, and so on. So, in fact, cities can and they do die. For a number of cities, what keeps people around is really the amenity value. That is, people really want to live in those areas. So in New York, part of what helped New York come back in Boston was that pe- they're beautiful areas and people like them and their cultural centers and high income people do want access to that. Whereas in other areas, again, Detroit, it just got so bad that people left, although now there's been a little bit of a revitalization. Um So, so I think you have many natural circumstances that make people want to live in those areas, but some cities absolutely will be on the brink. And particularly if they don't have that and you have, you know, but they're dominated by a few businesses and those businesses say, well, maybe I'll move out. And then when the first one moves out, everyone says, well, I don't want to be the last one to move out. And so you can, you can sort of see that unraveling. And we're worried, I think, you know, at least personally, I'm less worried about, The mega cities that, you know, everyone's going to want to be near San Francisco and everyone's going to want to be near Chicago and so on. So I'm not worried that those will go away, but some of what, if you will, the sort of middle tier cities that maybe people are moving to because house prices are cheap or something where you can then imagine people saying, you know, we could go elsewhere and, you know, then you can start a bit of a stampede there and the city can really suffer a lot. So I, I worry some about that. the the, the areas that will do well are the ones with the real natural amenities, both environmental, but also things like uh, like edu- like uh, education institutions. And one of the things that brought Boston back was very very strong educational institutions, and you know, particularly industries, finance in New York, and so on. So those are the kinds of things that can help cities maintain their vitality even when they get hit. Repeatedly by a bunch of bad stuff.
1: With, with mobile talent, right, having those, having those amenities becomes more valuable than ever. I just wanted to prove the limitations of remote contact. I just wanted to highlight that, even with a hardwire connection. Um, but one way to, to the... said, but... <laughs> one way to think about it, was
2: something I said.
1: One way to think about the big city, small city thing is think about there being, let's say, a 20% drop in commercial real estate prices. If you're starting at a place like San Francisco at $85 a square foot or something like that, higher in some areas, right? a 20% drop still makes you one of the most expensive places in the country. And those offices are going to be occupied, at least once we get the Delta variant under control. They may be occupied by scrappier companies. Some of it may be converted into residential, but that space is not going to go empty, even if the prices drop a lot. The, if the prices drop a lot in Buffalo, in Cleveland, in Detroit – then you actually see the prices just going below the price that can sustain a landlord keeping it open. And once you have that, once you have really long-term empty offices, then you know the whole thing spreads because there's not demand for local businesses, there's not demand for local restaurants. And so then you can have really the sort of spillovers that give you the urban the urban catastrophe.
0: So I'm glad you're back, Ed, and thank you for illustrating the point. Um, I Unfortunately, we're almost out of time. So I have just one final question for you all, and I hope it's okay. It's going to be a little bit more of a personal question, but Throughout your book, you talk about one of the solutions going forward is stronger civic governance. That includes the relationship among each of us as actors and uh, community members. You also talked just just a few minutes before about it's not so much about where we need to go, but actually being focused on how we get there. And you also acknowledge in your book that you hold a really quite different political philosophies in some cases. And I wonder if you could just describe what the process was like for the two of you to come together to produce this book together.
2: So uh, I personally found it a great treat. And I think you learn an enormous amount, particularly by being around people who you don't agree with as much. Now, Ed and I actually agree on a lot, but I- areas, for example, the issue that you and Ed were just discussing, which is how bad will it be for downtowns if you know 20% of the real estate all of a sudden there's not much demand for. We've been around on that so many times and we've had email conversations and phone conversations and in-person conversations back and forth. And every time there's an article one way or the other, we sort of discuss it and we talk about it. And it's just really amazing. And I think a part of what we try to do when we work is say, let's figure out what we think the truth is independent of whatever our leanings might be about policy. And there are areas on policy, I'm surely more activist than Ed. And, you know, had I been in sole charge of everything, the book would be more activist in some places, and it had been in sole charge of everything, it would have more of a libertarian bent and other things. But that's okay, because what we want to get to is sort of a diagnosis of it, and also how can you see the world differently? And at least for me, being able to understand that people can see the world differently, and it's not because one person is evil, is really very important, because you can then see why someone could really believe one, one point of view over another point of view and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh,
1: I, I, you know, I, I've i known David and I've worked with David for 30 years and it has been an enormous pleasure every moment and I've learned from him an enormous amount as I did on working on this book. And the, the, one of the key things is that we have to recognize that even when we have slight differences of opinion or more than slight difference of opinion on sort of values, there are still facts out there that we actually need to agree on, and then if we, as long as we get the facts straight, we can then, you know, understand where to come to the middle in the values. I'll give you a clear example where we do, in fact, differ slightly. I think, in fact, probably your, your viewers differ slightly on this as well, which is towards things like drug use, uh, food use, uh, you know, obesity, smoking. There is no question that David is more, you know, positive about various public interventions to try to stop people from harming their own body. Whereas I am innately warier of that. Right. So that, that's 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 where we are. It does not mean that there's we have written papers together on opioids. We have written papers together on obesity. We agree basically on everything about the sort of core elements of what has caused the rise of obesity or what has caused the change in opioids. But we come to a slightly different place. But it doesn't mean that there's any disagreement about the science. And that's in some sense what's so tragic about the pandemic. And it's, it's a tragic aspect in many parts of our life is that we've politicized a pandemic of all sort of bizarre things in the world to politicize, right? This is a thing in which, you know, there's, I mean, there's this old urban line that there's no Democratic or Republican way to clean up a sidewalk, right? Or to shovel snow because, you know, it's a technical job that needs to be handled. It's basically the same thing with pandemics. There's no Republican or Democratic way to fight a pandemic, right? We may change slightly about our mask mandates, but at least we should, if we're going to release, if we're going to end a mask mandate or end a, a restaurant lockdown for, you know, Personal freedom reasons. At least we should get a very clear message from a governor at this point in time that says, look, it's not safe to go out. Let me make it clear. We're going to defer to your judgment, but it's not safe. Whereas, you know, all this stuff got muddled because of this. And I really, you know, I see this as being somewhat similar to sort of World War II in the sense that, you know, politics should stop at the at the water's edge. Politics should stop when we get to actually these larger issues. And we really need to recognize that only with a pragmatic, fact-based, science-based, reason-based approach can we actually pandemic-proof our world.
0: So thank you both so much. We are unfortunately out of time, um, but it has been just an absolute pleasure to be in conversation with both of you. I also want to thank the Commonwealth Club, our host, for today's very important program. And I encourage our viewers to pick up a copy of Ed and David's new book, Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation, wherever books are sold. I am Alicia John baptiste and this Commonwealth Club is now adjourned.
2: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of
0: California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you